the Desert Ranch Podcast is brought to you from Indian Springs Working Ranch, located in the beautiful Pelencio Wilderness Mountains of Eastern Arizona. Indian Springs Working Ranch provides guests with an authentic working ranch experience. Guests will herd cattle on horseback, repair fences, and live as real ranch hands do. Check it out at www.indianspringsworkingranch.com. Also brought to you by Our Lazy J Wildlife Ranch, an education and conservation breeding ranch in Eager, Arizona. Get up close and personal with more than 56 species from around the world. Encounter sloth and lemur, cheetah and clouded leopard, as well as many types of hooved, feathered, and scaled wildlife on the web at ourlazyjranch.com. Today's Desert Ranch podcast is brought to you by Roar Zufari, located in Vienna, Virginia. Known as Fairfax County's largest petting zoo, Roar Zufari's goal is to connect families and animals and create awareness, understanding of wildlife and the environment in which it lives. The 30-acre family-owned zoo is located at 1228 Hunter Mill Road in Vienna, Virginia. Visitors are offered a Zufari tour, walking tour, camel rides, and the zoo features a large walk-in parakeet aviary, magical butterfly gardens, and numerous memorable opportunities to get close to animals of all sizes. On the web at www.roarsufari.com, also on Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Desert Ranch Podcast with Vanessa Rohr. Vanessa and her guests will give you some insight into the lives of those who are keeping us from being naked, hungry, and thirsty. Now, here is your host, Vanessa Rohr. Welcome to another episode of the Desert Ranch Podcast. My guest today is my beloved husband, my ride or die. The reason I get up in the morning, it's Jacob Rohr, my partner in crime. Jacob, today let's start and in introducing you to our audience. Just tell the audience a little bit about all the different types of animals that you've raised in your lifetime. I know there's been a lot of them, but if you can list a few dozen off to give everybody an idea of you know, the sort of background and love of animals that you have. Well, I'm a third generation cattle rancher, so we've always raised a lot of cattle, horses. Uh, we've always picked up a few stray animals that were in need of some care, I guess. And we've had raccoon, uh, a few deer, and lots of other animals. I think there's some stories too, like with your kids, when they were younger, you ended up raising all kinds of little critters, maybe some pocket critters. Yes, we had a whole herd of hamsters, which quickly populated (laughs) from like 20 to 50 in no time at all. Uh, Guinea pigs, they love to raise guinea pigs. Uh, Rabbits, of course, and the deal is that everything breeds like rabbits, which is a lot. We had goats, calves. My kids were very, very busy taking care of 
quite a few different types of animals. And I think they, they did 4-H as well, right? Yes, they did 4-H. They showed goats that we raised. They showed lambs that we raised. And they also did steers that we raised on our own ranch and small farms that we had over the years. And we are a blended family. And I know my kids have also benefited from having you in their lives in terms of um, getting animals. Of course, I have had my own share of animals. And I think at one time when we first blended our families and we had like 17 goats and a few donkeys and burros and plus the normal cats and dogs and rabbits. And then you met, also when you met me, you started getting into the exotics. Yes, so at the beginning I knew how to weld and I knew how to build lots of fences and cages for keeping different types of animals. Well, enclosures, shouldn't say cages. Enclosures for different animals and that's how we kind of met was you were working for Arizona, I believe and I was looking for something to do and ended up helping you build the Jaguar enclosure for Arizona and it kind of went from there. <laughs> yes, it did. I think we've, we've gone a lot of, lot, lot of places since then and, and um, taken care of a lot of critters. Now, growing up in agriculture in the, in the 80s, I mean, my, from my own experience in the 80s, it was a tough time. Um, my father, as you know, was a construction worker, and he went from making very good wages in the 70s and, into making, you know, barely, not much over minimum wage during the 80s, and it was certainly a, a change of pace and struggle for us. And I think everybody in agriculture really struggled during that time. Um, and your family didn't have a lot of money. Did you know that your family was struggling back then? Yeah, I could see it in my fam- uh, mom and dad's eyes. You know, they were worried about, I am the second oldest of five boys and having enough food for everybody to eat and being able to take care of the kids. So we always had, a, I had a role of taking care of my younger siblings while my mom and dad went out and worked. My dad mostly worked ranches. My mom worked other jobs from waitressing to at the schools and everything to help make extra money so we could all have a roof over our head and food to eat. And being one of the oldest boys and taking care of those uh, younger boys, I've I've heard um, really both amusing and as a parent and a parent in modern times almost horrific stories of what that looked like. Um, my favorite one, and I mean, I think growing up in the desert is is a hard and can be a hard and dangerous sort of place to grow up anyway. But my favorite story is about um, when you guys would be left to babysit along the banks of the Big Sandy River. Of course, the Big Sandy River sounds like it's really big, but at most times there's only two to three inches of water and maybe four to five feet wide. So I guess my mom and dad wasn't too worried about us drowning in there when we could lay on our backs and our ears would still be above water. Yes, but this is still the desert and 
if it's not the water that you would worry about, which you can drown in a teaspoon of water. Uh, very true, very but, true. But there's bobcats and mountain lions and bears and snakes and scorpions, and you guys weren't worried about any of that. No, the animals had to more worry about us than we did have to worry about them. They were, they wouldn't bother us. Uh, we smelled terrible and, uh, <laughs> you know, hardly bathed besides in the river that they drank out of. So we kind of <laughs> blended right in into the desert. So how old were you when you guys were, your parents would, they're going to find uh, stray cattle in the bush and, and they would drop you and tie off and, and you're in charge of all your little brothers. What were the ages of everybody? Or guess. Uh, Who was in diapers? I remember, at the time, I would say Aaron, the next down from me, and Michael would have been the only two that really we had to take care of at the time. My youngest brother, John, wasn't born at the time. And uh, those two would go with us, and me and my brother would basically sit underneath the shade tree of a... Uh, cottonwood and lay in the river which was a couple inches deep of course and we made sure nobody drowned and the first time i remember actually going out i believe i was five or six i believe when i can remember back to uh having to take care of him because i remember asking mom why did they have to come to and she says well who else is going to take care of <laughs> were they in diapers yes they were both in diapers which we just took off and they ran around <laughs> in the nude in the wild and that's where we started the first original naked and afraid <laughs> and that's why you and, and levi our youngest son get along so well because i think Le levi uh, pretty much grew up naked and afraid <laughs> or naked and unafraid do you consider yourself a risk taker? There's times that I think about when I'm going to do something, and then there's times that I just don't think about it and I do it, and then afterwards I go, that could have went really wrong. So every day in my life I kind of think I'm sort of a risk taker, but sometimes I think about it before I actually do it. Can you think of um, a time that you took a risk and... I guess, get, like, two examples. One time you took a risk and it worked out really well and you're really proud of that, and then a time that you took a risk and it didn't end up going so well. Uh, growing up on a ranch, there's been lots of times that I have taken a risk and rolled up on a bull that didn't want to be controlled and roped him, and me and the horse and the bull all ended up coming to a stop at the same time and nobody got hurt and then there's been other times that i roll up on a bull or a cow and rope it and i fork a tree and end up upside down underneath my horse so the odds there are a little bit uh 50 50 when it comes to messing with animals and working with animals well i i think in like working animals with you yesterday at the our lazy j wildlife ranch i'm so grateful that you're not afraid of taking risks and and certainly there's been many times where i think stuff that you do isn't for the faint of heart and and it's probably hard for a lot of people just to imagine what you just said in terms of roping a bull 
on the side of a hill or ending up under, underneath a, a bull. Um, clearly, you're not afraid of jumping onto a 900-pound bull and even bulldogging it to the ground like you did for the neighbors that one time. <laughs> Actually, tell, tell the audience about that story because it's, it's better to come from you. Well, one morning we were sitting at the kitchen table and our house overlooks the valley, Beaker, uh, Arizona, where we live. And I was watching the neighbor kids down on the flats below us and I watched them trying to get these cows into the corral and they had one uh, Herford bull calf that would, I'd say he weighed about 600 and some pounds and he was ready to be weaned off of mom because he was big enough that he could be on his own. And they were chasing him around this field that was fenced off, not very well, with barbed wire, of course. And uh, they had him all stirred up. So I said, well, I guess I better go down and see if I can help the neighbors. And everybody that was in the house at the time, I believe you and my brother, Ty, Ty was there. And I can't remember who else. If that I was. think... And then we called Colton and Michael. Oh, yeah. We called my bro other brother, Michael, and our cousin. cousin Colton that were down at the zoo working and told them if they could come up and help us, please, that we were going to help the neighbor get this bull into their corral. We got down there, and the bull just wanted, he was mad, just wanted to chase us around. And we had a rope with us, and we figured, well, we'll help rope him if we can. And the bull ran around and ran around and take it. I'm not on a horse. I am on a side-by-side -side disco around. And we were kind of farmer in it is what I like to call it. And about the third trip around there, that bull's started to get really tired and really mad. And I figured somebody's going to get hurt. And I'd seen this in Australia, which I've never been to and I want to go. But... I decided that I was going to take stuff into my own hands and I parked the side-by-side -side on the side of the bull. You bumped him a little bit. I bumped him a little bit, yeah. He lost his up. balance, huh? He lost his balance. I bumped him with the side-by-side -side and then he was kind of knocked down and I jumped out and grabbed his feet and held him to the ground until the rest of the guys could run at full force across the field to help me tie him down while the neighbors went and got their trailer, and then we were able to pull him in the trailer by hand and a rope around his neck and loaded him on there, and he was safely on the trailer, and they moved him to where they needed him. Was it one of my best moments? I'm not sure, but it dang sure got the job done. <laughs> I would say it was one of your best moments. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you made a call that, you know, that animal was getting hot, and and you know if we if you would have kept working it like you were you know everyone working it like they were something might have happened to the animal or like you said somebody could have gotten hurt and so i i mean that's that's what makes you amazing to me is that you know you can negotiate those things and in the end end up doing what's best for the animals and for people and really sacrificing yourself and maybe throwing some of that um, sense of self-preservation out the window from time to time. But I do love working animals with you, whether you believe that or not. <laughs> You've seen other couples work animals. How do you think we work as a, as a couple? 
I believe we work pretty good as a couple. There's a few times you holler at me and I holler at you and then we laugh about it when we're done. And yeah, working as a couple, you have to be able to sit back at the end of the day and say we were both fools and we got the job done anyhow. And it just works out better that way, you know? I think um, if people that, especially if people haven't grown up on a family operation or work, worked livestock with their families or with a spouse, I think probably when they look at us, they think we're crazy and like headed for domestic or, or <laughs> divorce or something like that. And so I think when we, when we work animals around our zoo staff, I mean, most of them we've are almost like our family and they've worked around us a long time. And, and I think they, you know, there's certain, those folks don't think anything of it, but if, if you're just like a, a zookeeper and you're watching us work, I think they, they probably don't know what to think. Yeah, and I've worked at, well, I've hauled animals from other zoos, and I've had to do the hold my beer moment. And when I grab a reindeer by the horns to load him on the trailer because I don't want him to get hurt, people have looked at me like I was totally nuts. And uh, you weren't there for that adventure. But the times that we worked together, like catching an ADAX that got out, using a truck as part of a shield and me grabbing its horns, <laughs> that's a moment that we both worked together and nobody got hurt. We didn't even yell at each other that time either, I don't think. No, we yelled at a few staff people because they were standing <laughs> looking the opposite way with an animal running up behind them, but that's what happens when you own animals. Yeah, yesterday, I have to admit, was really fun. Um, you know, I'm probably legitimately hard of hearing. I can never hear your tone of voice over the chaos or the wind or whatever's going on. And then we have uh, Carlos, who's a staff person of ours and practically family with his thick Mexican accent and his own version of sign language. I think we all get an A-plus in teamwork and communication, flexibility, and creativity because, I don't know, we started on plan A, and getting these, um, we, we, we gathered up, what, almost uh, 30 head of Audad and uh, 16 head of Black Buck. And, um, and nobody got... Of, and all of them were loaded and put on the trailer for their new homes, safe and sound, and nobody was hurt. Uh, maybe a few bruises on me and some of the staff from having to grab the Black Buck to put hoses on the end of their horns so they don't poke holes in other animals while they're with them on the trailers, but uh, we're the only ones that had a few scratches and bruises and were sore today and we still lived uh, for another year. Did you think, you know, maybe 10 years ago before you met me, did you ever imagine that you would spend a day um, catching exotic hoofstock? I've always been around animals. I never dreamed of raising exotic animals, but when the story of the exotics come up and how some of them are extinct in the wild, I enjoy raising exotics now, and I'd rather do it with you than anybody else in the world, I believe, so. Ah, well, that's very sweet things, honey. Do you, you know, we, we still have the domestics, um, 
what are are there is there anything about the exotics that you like better than the domestics or the domestics that you like better than the exotics? Uh, I like the cattle and the horses because most of them can't jump 10 foot or higher. And some of the exotics, they like to be able to try to fly, I believe. And uh, they may, they're interesting to work because you don't know if they're going to go over your head or between your legs or through you. And usually on cattle and horses, the exot or the domestics, you can kind of see where they're going. And sometimes they try to run through you too, but they don't try to jump over your head. That's true. I was going to say that we have a couple crazy cows still that we, if we can catch, they're going to probably go down the road. And, and we switched out a bull or two for that reason. It's, it's, it is nice with the, the domestics to try to um, breed and select for um, animals that are calm and cool. You can work around on foot. And exotics are basically animals that uh, loosely have prey hunting them. So I don't believe or you predators. can. Or predators. I yeah. really don't believe that you can breed the wild and flee out of exotic animals. So it always makes it an interesting time when you have to gather or do anything with them. That is true, 100%. Um, we do have many, um, we've always had family members working for us also, whether it's our children or brothers. Um, that has its own challenges also being a family operation, but I don't know if I can imagine it being any other way. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's like my brother Michael. He's been with me for over... 24 years, I believe, is what's going on. He's always worked for me doing whatever business is at the time I'm doing. And I love him most of the time. I've fired him like 50 times, and he always shows back up to work on Mondays, usually. I'll fire him by Thursday, and he'll come back on Monday and say he's ready to work again. And I usually take him back because I love him. He's my family. And uh, it has its challenges sometimes. You know, you can't scream at him as much, but I still do, so I don't know. So here we are, we're actually recording this from the road, on a road trip. Um, I know we've, we always, we're always talking about how we spend less time on the road, but between having a, a zoo in the mountains of Arizona and a desert ranch and then our place out in Virginia, it seems like we spend a lot of time in the truck together. And sometimes that's really good for uh, brainstorming and, and problem solving and all that. And then sometimes it's, it's my fault. I'll take blame for it. But by the end of the trip, <laughs> it's like having two caged animals in the truck sometimes after you've been in there for like four or five days. You just want peace and quiet and <laughs> nobody talking in your ear and anything going through your mind. You just want to look straight ahead and say, "Don't please don't talk to me. Please don't talk to me. We're almost home. <laughs> or I, I'm guilty of like trying to... I don't try to start arguments, but... I don't know, then I don't know if we run out of things to talk about and then I start like think thinking about things that don't agree with me and 
<laughs> being being in confined space isn't the time to probably work that out. Yeah, uh, we've had our uh, arguments in the vehicle, and I'd say most of our arguments are in the vehicle because <laughs> at the end of a 24-hour straight drive, you ran out of stuff to talk about that's positive, and now <laughs> we just want to kill each other most of the time. But but we haven't, thankfully. Haven't driven that driven the truck pulling the trailer full of livestock off the bridge. So. Um, we have uh, kind of a more serious situation in Arizona right now. Uh, we found out a couple weeks ago, but we knew it was coming. We didn't know, I, I mean, I didn't realize how severe it would be, but um, with the water restrictions cutting, I think, I think the water restrictions are something like 20% less water available from the Colorado River system, but then, um, you know, our your family farm was sold where we used to buy a lot of our hay. So um, hay production, agri-production, I think there's estimates of being 40% less available this year. Um, some, a seed shortage also. So, you know, we've, it seems like, I don't know if it was this way before COVID or COVID made it worse, <laughs> but it seems like we're just putting out one fire, running from one fire to the next fire. and. The most recent fire is this water water shortage, which is going to make hay harder to get. Um, in addition to the inflation for producing crops, uh, you know, just less hay altogether. Um, what was going through your mind when, you know, we kind of went over those details together? Uh, Wait. Okay, there you go. Um. I was thinking a lot, well, I was, like I said, the family farm had sold. Uh, I knew that the land eventually was going to be turned into housing developments just because of the growth in the Buckeye, Phoenix area. Um, I knew that eventually the water drought was going to hurt us. I just didn't think it would all happen since COVID. I don't know if COVID's the blame for it, but... Uh, we just kind of figured that it was going to go up. And in the livestock business, there's always either horses are high and hay is low, or the horse market is low and the hay is really high. And when the prices start dropping on horses and cattle and everything else, you know the hay is going to go high. So it's kind of a telltale when it comes to that part of it. But we also found out that a lot of the stuff people cannot get, like plastics, which I didn't believe in, that we'd ever have a shortage of plastics. Uh, fertilizer went from 400, uh, 400 a ton to 1,800 a ton this year. So that makes it more expensive to grow anything. And, you know, I always laugh and say, if I could know the future, I'd be a millionaire. But Nobody knows the future and what it holds for us, so it's scary all the way around. Hopefully we can get through this year again and it turns around in the next few years. Do you feel like also, like just being products of the 80s, that's kind of made us more resilient? I mean, I, I think there are definitely times in my life where, well, when I, my, my income didn't solely uh, 
come from animal production in one way or the other. I had I had some off farm work, so to speak, but um, I feel like that struggle coming through the '80s has kind of made us more resilient and and prepared us for this to an extent. Yeah, you know we've. I always try to think into the future. Uh, you know, 80s was pretty rough. Uh, I was young, and so were you, of course. And um, we saw hard times, and we saw where I've seen fuel prices go up. I've seen fuel prices go down. I can remember as a kid, the first vehicle I had was a dirt bike, and fuel was 125 or 110 a gallon, and I could fill it up for nothing. Now I have a Dodge truck and it holds 50 gallons and I can't afford to fill it up. <laughs> so we've seen it go up and down. Uh, I believe it's helped us out a lot in the, the past has in the 80s and stuff because we try not to uh, get too far ahead of ourselves just in case something bad does happen or changes, you know. Uh, we do try to supply enough feed and food for ourselves. We try to grow enough stuff for ourselves. Uh, I'm not saying we're doomsday people and have everything in bunkers, but we, you know, it helps us prepare ourselves. Actually, COVID helped us prepare ourselves a little bit better. You know, for a while you couldn't hardly buy groceries or you know get enough groceries to feed a family of four or five, and uh, year by year, just play it by year and hope it turns out for the best for us I guess is how we have to do it yeah I know when our uh, both of our zoos were shut down during COVID we had no income we had all those animals that we were trying to figure out how we were going to feed and like it was just we had to let all of our staff go also in Arizona um, because we, we had to choose like do we pay for our staff to stay on and take care of the animals or do we take that money and buy hay and feed for the animals so um, that was really hard because you know our our staff are like our family most a lot of them are family but um, you know we figured they could go on unemployment but no one was gonna really help us feed our animals and that was really mentally hard for me but at the same time I (laughs) was thinking about you know, growing up and what we did to make ends meet and, and um, you know, I know some of the stories from how your family made ends meet and I okay, like a lot of other people were get some potatoes in the ground and, uh, you know, just take it one, one day at a time, one step at a time and get, get through this. And I'm super grateful that, uh, you know, you were my rock and all of that and, we were able to work together and get through that. Yeah, uh, we had hard times. Uh, you know, the animals always came first. And, you know, our kids, because we are a blended family, uh, came together and they really helped us a lot from uh, taking care of all the animals that we had. And even some of our staff, because our zoo in Virginia, we weren't able to travel back and forth because of COVID. And, um, you know, me and you talk about the 80s, they're going to be talking about the 21, 20, whenever COVID started, I'm trying to... 2020. 2020, (laughs) trying to forget about. The 20s, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a life lesson for us and them, I believe, you know. 
because they had to step up, you know, and help out any way they could. You know, we had the restaurant going at that time, and, you know, our 14-year-old son was in there cooking, cutting up steaks, doing hamburgers, and we were sending out to-go boxes because nobody could come in and eat. People were buying them, and we were helping, trying to feed the community, and it was a learning curve for all of us, but we made the best of it and did really well, I believe. I feel like it. I feel like I've aged like ten years in the last two years. <laughs> I feel like I'm living dog years now. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I don't remember having any gray hair on my sideburns or my beard, but uh, it's coming in really thick and nicely lately. So I'm going to blame it on COVID, I believe. Yep, COVID hair, not gray hair, pretty much. So. We have, um, we're getting ready to, well, hopefully we can get a well in. That will help us down at our ranch, and we have some good springs. And then we, it looks like we're going to get some irrigation turns on the mountain. We don't get full irrigation year-round. We get, like, six weeks of irrigation. And, and then there's usually, like, what, two weeks of, like, a lot of praying between when our irrigation ends and when our summer monsoon might start. Yeah, we always pray for rain. Uh, one more rain is what we always say, and uh, that's all we need is one more rain, and everything will be okay. Uh, yeah, it's always tough this time of year because we got to figure out how we can spend our time between our businesses and making sure everything's doing well. Our hired staff, our animals, uh, and hope that we have enough feed for everything. That if times get tough and they have to have supplement, we can give it to them. I think one of the men things that's been mentally difficult for me ever since I've lived in Arizona, which is now, uh, gosh, twelve years, is that in Arizona we might get some uh, moisture in the form of rain through the winter. Um, sometimes snow up on the mountain. However, it doesn't do anything to green up the grass. So if it doesn't catch in a tank or a reservoir, it's really not, quote, good for anything. And, um, you know, in South Dakota, if we get a warm-up and we get, a, we get some rain, even if our grass has been brown and dormant, but it's now like March or April, we'll get some green up. Um, but we don't get that green up when, we sh- when it feels like we should, um, down in Arizona, even in the desert, um, though our, our cactuses might start blooming and that sort of thing. And then we can go from like April until the middle of July without any rain at all, which is really hard. And so like, again, in South Dakota, you get that, like, it's spring, it's new, it's pretty, uh, new life sort of spring bloom. And, uh, it's, really have to look for it down here in Arizona. So that's been an adjustment uh, coming out of winter and not having that sort of rain and springtime rejuvenation. We have to wait until our monsoon comes in in July to get that. But I think it's also allowed me to look more closely and find, find beauty in different things, different times of year in the desert and up on the mountain. And I know when we bought our Virginia place out at 
Roar Sufari, it seemed like when you saw that green grass, that 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 really that really struck you too. Like you, you seemed to, to really respond to, to that green grass initially. Yeah, when we first saw uh, Virginia, I go, man, look at all the green grass, you know. I'm from a cattle ranch, and where grass is, literally you can grow animals. And, uh, you know, they can eat it in Virginia as well, but then you find out later on that it has no nutrition because it's just all water, basically. And it's kind of like, why do we have so much grass, but these animals don't do so good on it? And it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around it, I guess, you know, for me. And then we found out, too, that the, the parasite load in that country that has so much rain is so much higher, and we really battled the parasites and that sort of thing. So I guess the moral of the story is the grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. <laughs> that is for sure. You know, it could be two foot tall, cattle can sit in and eat it, and they still look skinny, and it's like, what's wrong with this grass? <laughs> so, I wanted to, I almost forgot, but I, I, I wanted to bring up this story and, and have you tell the story from your perspective. And that story is the story of catching the zebra at Zoo of Acadiana, because I think... Um, you know, you're a lot of things to a lot of people, but I, I think to the Oldenburgs, you will forever be their hero. And um, you basically showed up and put your cowboy hat on and went to work. Yeah, that was a very fun trip. And it was me and my brother, Michael Rohr, and Matt Oldenburg, and his dad, which... George. George. And uh, Matt and George had never seen somebody, I guess I call it cowboying, and they had this young zebra that they needed moved, and we said that we would come and do it for them, and they said, okay, so we get show up there at their place, and the zebra, the dad and the mom zebra are on the, in the corral with the young zebra that's ready to go to a new home, and they all look at me and they go, how are you going to get this zebra? And I go, well, that's a good question. I go, what I'm going to do, I guess, is I'm going to go in and I'm going to rope this zebra and I'm going to pull it to the gate. You guys open the gate and I'm going to pull it right onto the trailer because it's two, three hundred pounds. And I go, my brother Michael's going to help me do it. And they go, okay, that sounds like a plan. Well, when we get in the corral, they decided they wanted to be in the corral with us. So I go, okay, you guys stand over here. Let's not make them run around a lot. I'm going to go in and I'm going to rope this zebra. And you guys just start going to the gate as soon as I rope the zebra because that mom and dad is not going to be happy. And they're all, okay, we will. So as I go into the corral, the zebras kind of move up and down the fence a little bit and I build me a nice size loop to go around his head and I catch the zebra and I holler at him, open the gate! And all they saw was the mom and dad chasing me and the zebra I had on the end of the <laughs> rope and George turns around, runs smack into a post that's holding the barn up and breaks his glasses and we grab him and start dragging him out of the corral 
as the same time I'm dragging this baby out because mom and dad is going to whip my butt for touching their baby. <laughs> and everybody is going every direction to get out of the krill because they all realize mom and dad is going to do some zebra butt kicking. <laughs> and we got everybody out of the krill safely. And George don't remember half of it because I think he knocked himself a little goofy. <laughs> but they said they had never seen nothing as crazy as that before. And when you say you had a hold of them, how did you have a hold of the zebra? I had a hold of the zebra basically with the rope that I put around his neck and to pull him out of the corral. And so he's on the end of a rope. And my brother Michael actually ran in and grabbed him by the tail to start pushing him. And he would have got more butt whipping than I would have because I was on the other end doing the pulling. <laughs> because mom and dad was coming up fast and they didn't like that we were playing with their baby. Yeah. Yes, I wish that was, I wish I was there. I wish no one ever gets this stuff on video. and uh, but But the stories are are there and I know the Oldenburgs were both you know grateful and and in awe and um, you know watching you throw that rope and basically cowboy that zebra on into the trailer we um, remember that first year when we were in Virginia and we had muskox and and we didn't have a good way I feel like a good horse would go a long way if you could get it used to all those animals um, in the zoo, but we didn't have a good horse and we had to get the muskox needed a, a, a vaccination or an antibiotic shot or something and Didn't we put you in the back of the Ford truck and then and drive around the safari trying to rope it? Yeah, I don't think that was a muskox. So that was actually uh, Yak we were oh, trying yes, to chase. that was. We want muskox, but we have oh, never yeah, yeah, been yeah, able yeah. to get any. Yeah, that was some yak cows that a guy talked me into taking. And we had them out on our, what was it, about 17-acre pasture. And one of them needed some doctoring. And we figured, what the heck, we'll just... Pink eye. I think it yeah, had, it had pink, pink eye. eye. Yeah. Oh, I can't see very well. I'll get in the back of the truck. I'll tie my <laughs> rope off to the bumper. What's the worst thing going to happen? <laughs> well, we get out there. And that yak decides it doesn't want to be anywhere near the truck or where I can even try to catch it. And it's just running at, I think it was 45 mile an hour plus because we couldn't keep up with even the truck. And you were flooring it and I was holding on to my cowboy hat and the rope and trying to stand up in the bed of the truck. And it looked like something that was going to turn out really bad. And eventually we did get that yak, but we did not rope it that day. It was too much, and the grass was wet, and that truck slid all over the place. So <laughs> I bet those neighbors of ours at Rosifari who have uh, all their homes, backyards up against the zoo, I bet somebody had a good chuckle that day. <laughs> you would think so, because here is somebody standing in the back of a truck with a rope in his hand, and they're wondering, what in the world are these guys doing out here? And they might even have a video, but I don't know. They might not know how to put it on YouTube or Facebook or something, because I imagine that would have showed up somewhere. That was at least a comical event that the Yak won and we lost, but it was okay. We got her later on and got her pink eye cured up and put her back out on pasture. So. 
That's right, it all ended well. So I'm just looking at the road before us here again. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we're headed down the highway. And I I feel like I know, and, and you do this trip way more than I do. If I have a chance to fly back to Virginia, I fly and, and we'll probably drive it together four or five times a year. And you probably do it by yourself another two or three times a year. Between um, Arizona and Virginia, I-40 to I-81. And then sometimes we help other zoos out and we're hauling. We might hit I-10. We might hit... I-80, I-90, I-60, I think we've covered most of the highways, and I feel like I know most of the roads, especially I-40, truck stop to truck stop. I'm not sure if there's a truck stop or bathroom I haven't hit at some point in time across the country, but there are my favorites. So I really like um, that one in Arkansas, and you tell me if it's, I think it's the one um, at the Arkansas... It's not Arkansas-Tennessee border, but it's the one that's got a big Razorback thing, and um, yeah, it's, uh, you can always it's, get, like... It's just before you go into Oklahoma. It's Arkansas to Oklahoma. Oh, that's, that's right. what it is. You know the one I'm talking about. Yes, it's the one that has the stuffed bear in the first entry, and they always have pickled quail eggs yes. and all kinds of weird stuff, and you can actually get frog legs that's right. cooked up there. We had it the last trip. We stopped there to get fuel. And we were hungry, and I go, frog legs? I go, let's try those. Truck stop frog legs. Yeah, truck stop frog legs. And they were really good, they actually. They were. You know, stuff, they kind of tasted like chicken because they were fried and battered. But <laughs> I believe by looking at them and eating them, they were frog legs. So Yeah, and they had okra. They had all kinds of amazing good stuff. Do you have a, a another favorite or memorable truck stop in the U.S.? Uh, I kind of go towards the Love's truck stops. I don't know why. Uh, I guess they're easier to get in and out of, and usually they have clean bathrooms. And they always have a restaurant of some sort, from a Subway to a Jester's Chicken to uh, even Arby's I've seen inside of them. Well, before we realized that you had gout, you also were a big fan of their saddlebag beef jerky. Yes, uh, unfortunately being a... Arizona rancher. I love the beef jerky. I was raised on it. I don't know why the last year or so my gout doesn't like it anymore and neither does my foot when I eat it. So I went to eating about, I don't know, maybe three pounds of jerky on a road trip to eating none. And my foot loves me a little bit better. <laughs> yes, it's hard. It's hard to see you in pain and I, that gout flares up it's really awful do you have a truck stop or a, a place on, along the road that you wish we didn't have to go through uh not really uh, most of the places are really good uh closer back east uh nashville eh? i love the town I wish the road bypassed the town because they have switchbacks and traffic is always crazy. Uh, there's not really a truck stop there that we stop at, but we have to go through the town and that's what drives me nuts the most. Yeah, if we hit it at the wrong time of day, it's either it's probably really, really slow at the at the very least but then like you mentioned you have to go from left lane to right lane to left lane and back again and hopefully your navigator's paying attention or you're paying attention 
Um, I do recall that one trip we were hauling zebras from Florida back to our Lazy J Ranch. And you and Michael, or you'd been doing most of the driving, and it was like 1 a.m. I don't remember. We stopped somewhere. We were on I. Were we on I-10? I think we were on I-10. Uh, we stopped, and you needed to get fuel and use. The well, before food. that, before that, we were going to get just a couple hours of sleep. So I think it was like one, two o'clock in the morning, and we pulled into a, a motel. And I believe it was in Houston, Texas, is where we might have been. Might have been Houston on 10. I'm not sure. We pulled in though. Uh, I know we just. Laid down in bed. We all got showers. All got showers, laid down in bed, and our truck was like, I don't know, a couple thousand feet from our hotel room, but we could hear the noise of the zebras kicking the side of my steel trailer, and it seemed like every one of them on the trailer decided they all wanted to kick my trailer at the same time, and it almost kind of sounded like gunfire going off <laughs> with the kicks and a little bit of bomb at the same time. But we threw our clothes back on, and I remember we headed back for the truck, and as soon as we were on the road, they calmed down, and I guess they didn't want to stay at that hotel. And I offered to drive, and I don't drive very much, and um, I don't pull my weight driving at all, I, I admit that. But it was early in the morning, and I'm, I'm good at early morning. I'm not good after dark, and so... I, we must have driven about four or five hours and we got to San Antonio and it was rush hour. You guys were dead out of sleep and I didn't have a GPS or anything on and I was trying to follow the signs and it was one of those like I'm in the left lane, need to get in the right lane, but I'm hauling a 26 foot gooseneck and I missed the turn and I had to use the bathroom. So, um, I, I pulled off tiny little gas station at the other side of an overpass and you just calmly, calmly say to me, stop right here. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the seat and you saying, we're going to stop. And I go, okay. And then you had to swing really wide to get in there because a 26 foot trailer is really hard to turn on sharp corners. And I just kind of remember peeking through my eyes and seeing a power pole on the side. And I go, we're not wide enough. And that's when I told you, stop right here, please. You stopped. I think the trailer was still out in the road, but it might have been, I don't know what time in the morning it was. There was and no traffic. It was traffic. like 5 o'clock in the morning, I think. And I probably was hanging out, but I was like, what, two, three inches from that power pole. Yep, you were about three inches from the pole. I go, get out. Put the truck in park. I go, go use the restroom. And when you got out and left, I backed it up back onto the street and I swung wide enough to get it into the parking lot. So when you came out, we were ready to go again. Yep, you saved the day. And I have to, I always tell you, you're an amazing truck driver, trailer backer. Um, I know you could do it in your sleep blindfolded. You've had to get in and out of some pretty tight places and um because you've ha you've hauled animals for other people and other people that aren't set up for having any trailer let alone a big trailer into their place what's one of the zoos that has like maybe the most difficult um 
animal loading and unloading setups? Well, it's really hard to pick just one because I have hauled for different zoos. Uh, World Wildlife Zoo out of Phoenix. The guy has a great collection of animals there. Rest I've, his soul. I've, yeah, rest his soul. He has passed since. Uh, but he never made a gate that was wider than eight foot that you could get a truck in trailer through. And most of the time, there was always trees or ditches. So you had to have basically a pickup with a small trailer to even get through his zoo. When I say small, maybe something that you could fit one horse or two horses in. Um, the other zoos that I've hauled for, uh, one of them had a nice road, but you couldn't turn around at the end of it. And when I say road, it was about a half a mile long. And the only way to go down the road was in reverse. And it had a few rolling hills. So you had to go up one side, down the other, and you had wood fence on both sides of you, and maybe one to two foot clearance on each side of your truck and trailer. And we literally had to back it about 4,000 feet down there to be able to load some reindeer that we were hauling for a zoo out of New York. I'll never forget that winter we were, we were headed to Virginia and and we always joke that our friends in the zoo industry don't actually own a map because people would find out, oh, you're going Arizona to Virginia? We have some stuff. Can you drop it off in Michigan? Uh, how about New York? And we're like, that's nowhere near Virginia. <laughs> so we had, we had animals we were helping, you know, deliver to all of our, our friends' uh, zoos. And then we get into upstate New York and we hit a lake effect snowstorm. And we stopped at, I believe, Wild Animal Park first. Yes. And then I get out in the snow. And that's on the side of a hill also, not super well set up for trailers or big trailers. And we've got ice and 18 inches of snow. I step out and slip and whack my head on the, on the asphalt. And then um, when we're trying to get the exit gate, I think we got stuck or we were sliding into the the gate post, but we eventually got out of there. Yeah, all I can remember was I was backing in and the truck and trailer were sliding sideways. So I was watching my side and you said, I'm going to step out and make sure we're not going to hit nothing. And when I turned over to look at you and you had just stepped out of the door, you were flat on your back. And I go, what the heck happened? And all I saw was you just slip and the way you were gone, right next to the truck, laying there in the snow and that's packed on basically the asphalt. And then as we start moving backwards more, I believe is what we were doing, was backing in there. That's when we started sliding towards the gate post. And it was like, oh, please don't scratch my truck. Don't tear out his fence. And I believe we had to have them hook onto us with a loader and pull us forward to keep us from sliding into their fences. And it was quite an experience. The fun part of that trip though was, was before we got there, we were traveling up a grade of road that was like 55 miles an hour. I don't know if you remember this. And there's a semi ahead of us. And all I see is his brakes on, but he's sliding backwards. So I had to take the lane to keep 
from him running into the front of us as we're coming up behind him. And luckily, I lost traction about three times, but our truck still got enough traction that we could pass him without him sliding backwards right into the front of us. And that's when we had our, when we got past him, got to the zoo we were going at, and that's when you were figure skating on the ice. <laughs> good times, definitely good times memorable at any rate and um, I just am so glad that you are my partner as we travel down this road of life together because you're a heck of a truck driver, trailer backer, navigator and you're not not afraid to grab life by the horns very literally (laughs) and um, I don't know where this road is taking us but I'm I'm super glad that you're by my side here, driving down the road. And I couldn't ask for a better partner myself. (laughs) Well, you could probably ask. (laughs) But I got the best, so I don't need to. Okay, okay. (laughs) Good enough. Well, thanks for being my guest today on the Desert Ranch Podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have, and I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Desert Ranch Podcast. We hope we gave you a good look into the lives of those that care for land and livestock far past the 9-to-5 lifestyle. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week.